hi everybody welcome to another episode of book cafe podcast um in today's episode we will be talking about the book entitled the kareem's a sporting dynasty and my conversation partner for this episode is mr asif kareem the former uh, uh, national cricketer as well as the former captain of the kenyan national cricket team as well as one of the eponymous creams that is mentioned in the title of the book so what exactly is the book all about we will of course get to talking about that uh, but just before that uh, if you are watching this episode on youtube do please be sure to subscribe to the channel and hit that bell icon it really helps us out and if you are listening to this episode on apple podcast google podcast or spotify you know do please be certain to uh, continue to download and support the show because we are going to have a lot more content added very soon and in fact it's uh, fair to say that we have new content added all the time but as far as this particular episode goes let me first do my due diligence by welcoming our guest the author himself mr asif kareem hello asif bhai assalamualaikum and welcome to book cafe podcast wa alaikum salam and i look forward to this podcast thank you so much asif bhai first and foremost for uh, taking the time to uh, speak to us so we are cricket fans on the show asif bhai and of course you've had a distinguished career uh, with the kenyan national cricket team and you also had a a career in tennis as well so we'll definitely have to talk about all of that we also have to touch upon uh, because as you know that our uh, show is based out of dhaka bangladesh we definitely have to touch upon the kenyan rivalry with bangladesh in the mid to late 90s as well we will come to that as well but before we get into all that i just want to come back to the book itself and just ask you uh, the pertinent question um what exactly is the book about and why did you go about publishing it if you could just help us understand that first and foremost yeah. okay thank you very much uh, the book came about uh, really the idea came about when we were traveling to various countries including bangladesh uh, india and uh, several other countries where uh, when you would go uh, to those countries you would see a lot of prominence and uh, and respect given to the sports people of that country be it posters be it an ad in the newspaper or an ad on television and you go to the shops you would see books on them magazines coverage and all that and i was quite fascinated with that because in kenya this is kind of unheard of right. uh, and so it intrigued to me that when i retire i would like to uh, write a book you know give my experience on on what happened i thought you know with it would be something exciting to put an uh, closure to my career Mm-hmm. uh so and then i learned a lot of uh, record keeping from my late father you know in in the 50s and 60s when he was a huge name in kenya the only coverage we had was newspapers there was no internet or there was no social media and in those days you know if your name appeared in the newspaper i'm sure it must be the same in bangladesh pre social media was a big deal and if your photograph appeared it was even a bigger deal Right. and if you are if there was a headline on you what was the ultimate <laughs> so you know he was a huge name in in kenya and so i followed through from youngsters to keep my record so i so after i retired i would like to do a book obviously i retired um, and then like everything else you say okay i'll do it one day it'll happen and it took time mm-hmm. and then in 2011 an indian director visited my office here in nairobi because his children and my children were in the same school mm-hmm. so because he was following on what uh, we were doing in kenyan cricket was huge uh, you know in 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 
around 2000 uh, plus. So he came and believed that there should be a, a sports documentary on our family because of the heritage from my you know, grandfather, father, myself, and, and now my son. So I obviously laughed it out because it was something unheard of uh, in Kenya in those days. Uh, because in our mind, it was only for the huge names at international level. But he was very uh, firm on that uh, matter. And because he was a filmmaker, he believed in that story. And he felt that it would be good uh, to do that for posterity and it could be an inspirational story. So that's how the, the concept started on the documentary. And then it followed with a coffee table. This the documentary was done. Uh, it was premiered in India. My wife and myself were invited there. Uh, and that's how the, the whole story happened on the book. So I decided that we do a hundred year journey from the time my grandfather came to Kenya in 1926 from India uh, to, I think the book was in 2016. So it was about 90 years of, of good record keeping, uh, good information uh, that I felt I wanted to honor my parents and my grandparents uh, for what we had done as a family. And it was something that I felt would be a closure to my career. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And of course, Asifa, I should take this opportunity to mention to our viewers and listeners that um, I have had the opportunity to watch the documentary, which you were so uh, kind enough to point me towards. And uh, there will, of course, be a link to that documentary as well with this episode. It will be in the description. And anybody who is watching or listening to this podcast, I would definitely say that do please check out the documentary as well and be sure to check out the book as well because this is a family history, a family legacy, a sporting family history, a sporting family legacy out of Kenya that really is uh, worth, uh, uh, you know, reading about and watching about and listening to as well. So Asibay, of course, we will deep dive more into that. And uh, as you mentioned, your father, Yusuf, uh, from what I gather from the book as well as the documentary that he was a titanic figure uh, as far as the Kenyan sporting scene is concerned. So could you, uh, would you mind telling us a little bit more about your father Yusuf and how, uh, you know, and if I, and just before I, uh, you know, uh, go any further, let me just put it in context and say that obviously your family, your ancestors came from uh, Gujarat in India and they migrated to East Africa. And uh, as it goes with a lot of uh, families from the subcontinent that we tend to get boxed into uh, safe careers, right? Like you become a doctor or a lawyer or, or, uh, or any kind of uh, a safe career, but your family has a lifelong love affair with sports. So how did that come about and how supportive was your family with regards to you know, pushing yourself as well as your brother and now your son, uh, Irfan, um, you know, towards the sporting uh, genre? So do please walk us through that if you could. Yeah. When my grandfather migrated in 1926, uh, his name was Ahmed Karim. Uh, and obviously, when people from India uh, were migrating because they were ruled by a colonial, uh, con I mean, the British col uh, colony, uh, and there were huge challenges for Indians to survive. So the, the people from Gujarat moved to East Africa uh, looking for uh, greener pastures or good opportunities because that was the huge thing uh, at the turn of the century. So he was already playing what they call gully cricket in India or, you know, just uh, playing around. So when he came uh, to Kenya, he encouraged his children, uh, six uh, boys, uh, 
to go into sports to play. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it still baffles to me to date that when you are trying to look for food on the table, uh, trying to survive, and here is a man who encouraged his children to play sports. Mm-hmm. And we were part of a community that uh, had a sports club in Mombasa around those days. And so cricket uh, was uh, a big thing because when you come from India or the subcontinent, mm-hmm. you inevitably are involved in cricket in one form or the other. Right. So my father took it to a new level, totally. You know, he was so committed to his sports. Uh, and he also played tennis. Uh, and at the age of 14, when he started, uh, he managed to buy a racket from an auction uh, at a very minimum cost, where the strings of the racket were also broken. Mm-hmm. He managed to have it fixed. And within two years, he became... Mombasa champion uh, at the age of 16. And he went on to remain unbeaten for 25 years, you know, beating the colonial players, uh, beating the, all those who are playing tennis. And for, uh, I mean, that's phenomenal, you know, from the age of 16, from a, a very uh, challenging background mm-hmm. that you go on to win until the age of 42. Yeah. You know, so, and at that same time, he also used to play cricket at a very high level. Uh, represented Mombasa at every opportunity when a visiting side from India or Pakistan came. And he went on to play uh, very well. Even when MCC visited in 1958, uh, he played so well that he was immediately offered to play county cricket. Uh, But of course, in those days, it was unheard of anybody moving to England uh, for for such uh, ventures. And so he played for the country. Uh, in uh, in tennis, uh, in I think it was in 1974, and so he was a huge name in Mombasa. I mean, he was an institution, if I would call it, right. uh, where you know he 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 was the talk of he was the center of attraction, including volleyball, volleyball, the traditional volleyball. I don't know if it's played in Bangladesh, but there was traditional volleyball that, that he was also the center player. So he dominated the three sport uh, in the country. Uh, and a very well respected. And obviously, when we were born, and when you're born to a home that sports features every day, you inevitably get into into uh, playing that because you you see a superstar who is your father. You know where where people are. You know even meeting him was was a huge novelty. You know to, if he said hello to you was a huge thing. You know in those days, and so his influence and my mom's support uh, obviously helped in us uh, continuing. Uh, and that's how we develop into into the sports. Mm, absolutely. So it, it is amazing how your father managed to dominate three different sports, tennis, cricket, and volleyball. And I think that's really unprecedented, uh, you know, back in those days, especially for uh, somebody from, uh, uh, who is a person of color coming from an Indian background and competing with, uh, you know, uh, uh, the British uh, colonial masters, uh, as well as I'm guessing the locals and the Indian diaspora that was in Kenya. So, which brings me to the next question, Asibhai. Um, during your father's time, you know, for those of us who uh, haven't had the pleasure of visiting Kenya yet, um, during your father's time, what exactly was Kenyan society like? If I could, you know, sort of make a comparison between apartheid South Africa or Zimbabwe under Ian Spitz regime versus uh, uh, Kenyan society during your dad's time, 
Uh, would you say I, I'm guessing that it must have been comparatively better in Kenya than it was in South Africa, apartheid South Africa, and Ian Smith Zimbabwe? Would you agree with that? No, it was almost similar to okay. to what happened in uh, Zimbabwe and South Africa. In fact, uh, there used to be signboards in the in the white club where the signboard would say "Asians, Indians, and dogs not allowed." Mm. You know, so you could not even even if you played against them. They would have their own pavilion where your team would be sitting under the tree mm-hmm. as a team. Uh, so it, it was very similar to to you were treated as second class citizen. Uh, you know, you were just there because you are meeting their needs. That's why they're playing with you or they're playing against you. Right. Uh, and so, you know, the the racism was tremendously high. However. The one thing that did happen to him was he enjoyed a lot of respect mm-hmm. uh, because you know he was beating them, he was a, a formidable player, uh, he could bring the people together, so they would interact with him with a lot of respect and with a lot of dignity, including in fact I was doing the research and the, the stories that I got that you know even the police commissioner mm-hmm. uh, who was a tennis fan, so if he invited my dad to his office. He would actually receive him uh, at the reception, which was very unusual during the colonial master, where you know you you're totally disrespected uh, or you know to, talked to at their convenience. So he enjoyed a lot of respect uh, from the society, including the the British colony. Right. Okay. Well, uh, that that really is quite the eye opener because uh, I have to confess, Asifai, that during my reading of the book. Um, I wasn't exactly sure uh, what the society may have been like in comparison to the other two societies, Zimbabwe and South Africa. But I'm extremely uh, happy to have had your answer on this for posterity because I think that uh, you know it will be uh, a real eye opener for those of us who have you know sitting in Bangladesh or in this part of the world and wondering what Africa was like, East Africa was like around that time. So yes. Thank you very much for uh, putting that on the record. So uh, obviously, your father being such a uh, you know a champion tennis player, that really explains why both yourself and your brother Arif also took to tennis. So if I could ask you this question, Asibai, um, to what extent was yours and your brother's uh, you know tennis playing uh, technique different from your father's? Would you say that it was quite similar, or were they markedly different? How would you? Answer that. If I could ask you that. If you, uh, I mean, look at how uh, international sports. When you look at an icon as a youngster, you would want to imitate. You want to emulate the way they they, they play or they carry themselves. So obviously, my father was our role model, our hero, our father. So you would want to, like any son, emulate, uh, you know, and follow on his footsteps. So I would say we were all in a similar style of uh, playing. However, the difference between my dad and my brother Arif and myself, I was playing left-handed, mm-hmm. uh, where, whereas they were right-handed, right-handed. Uh, in, in tennis. So, but the, we were steady players. You know, uh, in those days, tennis was played more on a skillful. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. Skill was was at a higher level. Power was not in those days. A because of the quality of the tennis rackets. Uh, the style of, of the tennis was played. If you look, even look at the old videos, uh, in fact, up to the late 80s, was very skill-based. Skill-based, right. Uh, but now the, the sport has changed in tennis so much that power has taken over 
you know, the, the quality of the rackets, the, the fiber that they use, uh, the training that happens now, you know, the whole dynamics have changed in the last 30 or plus years. So now it's more power, the, the, the style and finesse and the skill uh, has taken a backseat. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And in fact, Asifa, you've preempted my next question, which was that uh, given that both your father, your brother and yourself were known as finesse players in terms of the tennis, and obviously power, the power game took over. And we see something similar happening with cricket as well, especially with the advent of T20 cricket, which seems to reward the power hitters more than the skilled cricketers, which is probably one of the reasons why Bangladesh doesn't really do as well with T20 as they do with maybe the ODI format, albeit they just had a terrible World Cup, but we'll get to that later. But uh, do you feel that you know we're missing out on something if the entire sport, you know, tennis or cricket or any other bat and ball sport just gravitates more towards power and the skill level diminishes, you know, how would you look at that? Would you say that it's a good thing or it's a bad thing? Do you lament about what's happening in both these sports? Uh, what would be your response? Well, I, 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 let me retract a little bit. I mean, skill is still required, mm-hmm. uh, but it's not as much as it was required previously because without skill or talent, you cannot progress. In terms of change, change is inevitable. Uh, you know, if you look at the historical of how cricket used to be played 70, 80 years ago mm-hmm. to the time when we played and now it's changed. So change is inevitable. We have to accept the situation. Uh, the dynamics are different. It has its own uh, flavor, if I could call it, in, in terms of how uh, cricket is being played now. And so it's something to accept. But obviously, having trans transited from skill and then having a, a huge change to power, you know, obviously as an as an older generation, I would still prefer uh, skill-based than yes. power-based. But change is going to be there. And it, it, I mean, you can see the levels, not only in cricket and tennis, every sport has changed. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. this, I mean, nowadays even the, the fitness level, mm-hmm. uh, which was never a priority in, in cricket, uh, in the olden days, now it's... Uh, more or less number one uh, for your selection. You know, if you're you're good, but if you're not fit, your chances of selections can be a huge question. So fitness has become a big thing. Strength has become a big thing. The quality of equipment has also changed. Remember the, the bats now that are being used or the rackets that are being used. Then I mean, when you see those sixes being hit, you'd wonder, I mean, they make it look so easy. Mm-hmm. But it's, it's the skill, the power and the equipment that plays a very instrumental role to what we are watching. Absolutely, absolutely. And in fact, if I can just summarize this particular section, so you have to roll with the times. So if power is the way that things are going, so you have to adapt in order to survive in both the sports. Yes, Indeed. so absolutely. So one last question, Asipai, with regards to tennis before we move on to cricket. Uh, would you happen to have a favorite tennis player uh, from this generation as well as yesterday's? Would be. Yes, obviously, uh, the current, uh, I mean, the one that uh, you, I mean, I enjoy watching is Novak Djokovic. Um, you know, the, I mean, what inspires me about him is the background that he comes from, from a war-torn country, uh, you know, where he, where he was playing or he started playing tennis in a swimming pool. Mm. Uh, you know, obviously without the water, but in a pool. Uh, and when you see a person coming from that background, to, to doing wonders and, you know, really uh, almost greatest of all times. Obviously, that's always a, a debate. But having won 23 Grand Slams, you know, mm-hmm. always very competitive. 
comes out from almost a losing position to goes on to win. He's done that that many times. So he's somebody I enjoy watching. Uh, but obviously, there have been a lot of great players. But in my generation, I always enjoyed uh, watching Jimmy Connors and uh, John mm-hmm. McEnroe. Okay, Jimmy. And and if I could ask you to pick between the two, uh, who did you side with more uh, during uh, the Connors McEnroe rivalry? Would it be Connors or McEnroe? So which one? well, I mean, because when I was young, I mean, I used to you know kind of uh, read and follow Jimmy Connors okay. because a he was left-handed mm-hmm. and his backhand strokes used to be double-handed, and that's how I used to start. Okay. But but with with time, the talent that McEnroe had. Uh, you know, he he was also uh, some someone that I used to enjoy. Obviously, I was not enjoying his tantrums, uh, <laughs> but he was a, 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 a huge uh, tennis player. Yes, and a left-hander as well. So two and left-handers, left abs- absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. wonderful, wonderful. Okay, so so that's amazing, Asim. Hi, um, I have to confess that before reading the book, I did not know about your background in tennis at all. So I'm extremely grateful to have discovered that uh, after having read the book and seen the documentary. So now let's move on to the next section, which is about cricket. And so obviously the first uh, question I have to ask is, um, where, when did the transition happen uh, from tennis to cricket? Or was it always uh, both the sports that you were playing concurrently? Do please take us through that. Yeah. Correct, yeah. Uh, you know, as I said, the, the family, my dad played cricket and tennis uh, at a very high level. Uh, volleyball never excited me personally, but cricket and volleyball, I mean, cricket and tennis was was exciting. So it was simultaneously playing at both sides. And remember, in those days, we were playing for the passion. The, the, I had never initially thought ever that I would let alone play the World Cup, that I would play for the country. Obviously, as a young person, you think, yeah, you know, it'd be nice. I mean, that's ultimate for every, every sportsman to represent his nation. Mm-hmm. So we were playing, you know, on, on passion grounds, uh, and 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 that kept on uh, happening until 1991 or 92, when I had to make a, a serious decision because in one of the tournaments, I mean, which was a huge tournament called Kenya Open Tennis, mm-hmm. uh, where I was on the in the finals, and that very day I had to play the semi-finals of a cricket match where I was the captain of a club match. So how do you know? How do you balance the the, the situation? And obviously, long story short, it's, it's covered in the documentary in depth uh, on what happened. But it became very difficult because I, I messed it up because I tried to play the final because it was a huge tournament. It would always be good to win a Kenya Open, mm-hmm. and at the same time, I'm captaining a team. We are playing the semifinals. I tried to juggle uh, both the things, but everything went to a disaster on that day. Mm-hmm. And at that very time, uh, Kenya was preparing to host uh, the Associate Trophy in 1994, mm-hmm. uh, right. where 20 countries were coming. And for the very first time, mm-hmm. the ICC decided that they were going to take three teams uh, from the Associate uh, level to play the following World Cup in '96. Until then, it was only one team. The winner of the Associate Trophy would be representing uh, uh, at the World Cup. Yeah. And so Kenyans, we had done well in Holland uh, in 1990. Mm-hmm. Uh, we reached the semifinals, uh, like Bangladesh, yeah. in, in that 90 uh, tournament in Holland. And so the sense of belief had become between the players and the administrators that here is a tournament that Kenya is hosting. 
20 teams are participating and three teams are going to qualify for the World Cup. So it was an important decision that the focus then uh, went, my focus also went into cricket because that was an exciting period. And secondly, I was wounded, you know, with what happened on the cricket, on the tennis uh, finals. And the disappointing part, and of course, I'm taking the full responsibility on that, is that the following month we were to play a Davis Cup match against Romania. Mm -hmm. Now, having done well to have reached the final, and then you're not even uh, invited to be in the squad. So, multiple of those things that happened, uh, but that's again another, another story. So that's how uh, then I more or less uh, uh, went into cricket and I still have my regrets because I was only 29 when I almost gave up uh, uh, tennis. I could have easily played for another five, six years at a very high level. But destiny had something else for me. Yes, absolutely. And, and it's, it is quite uh, interesting how you know, uh, the politics can kind of derail a promising career. And, I, and of course, uh, you know, in the current context, uh, with regards to Bangladesh and the 2023 World Cup, you know, I can just say uh, with regards to the fans here, uh, it was uh, a lot of the behind the scenes politics that kind of derailed the whole campaign. But, uh, you know, we'll come back to Bangladesh later on, Asif Bhai. But uh, coming back to the 1994 ICC Trophy, which, of course, as you mentioned, is the qualifying tournament for the ODI World Cup. Um, is it fair to say that 1994 was also the time that the rivalry between Kenya and Bangladesh properly began because as far as my memory goes, uh, in the last match uh, between Kenya and Bangladesh in 1994, uh, uh, Kenya beat Bangladesh by 13 runs and you actually took three wickets in that game in nine overs for 55 runs. So would you say that that could be the starting point of the intense rivalry that we got to see between Kenya and Bangladesh in the early and late 90s? Yeah, I would say that kind of uh, was the peak point because both the countries felt uh, that they were at par, you know. Right. Uh, but until then, uh, the history that I have is uh, Bangladesh visited Kenya in 1984 or 85, mm-hmm. uh, the first time, and and Kenya dominated that uh, the three-day match and the one-day match. But until 94, uh, Kenya never beat Bangladesh uh, in an ICC tournament. I remember playing my first associate trophy in, in 1986. And, and we had Bangladesh on the ropes. Right. Uh, you know, it was a 60-over match. Uh, it was a low scoring. I think that they got about 143 or something, if, if my memory serves me right. And we lost the match by, by 10 runs. Uh, my friend Atar Ali Khan was also playing uh, in that time. And then we played them in 90. Again, we lost to them in Holland. Right. So the first victory, and, and a very critical victory, because Bangladesh came to Kenya as one of the hot favourites, uh, at least to qualify, right. uh, for, uh, for, if not win the tournament. So that was a huge blow because Mohinder Ramanath was their coach mm, uh, right. on that, and through with so much of wealth of experience, you know, and the team that you had, you know, with Nannu, Atar, uh, Bulbul, uh, I'm trying to remember the name of the captain uh, then. Uh, Farooq Ahmed, yeah. Farouk, yeah. And in fact, the first wicket partnership Chasing 295 was almost 150 runs between Farooq and uh, and I think Bulbul, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and and so we when scored 295 in 50 overs at lunch break we were were quite confident that this game should be uh, in the pocket. Right. 
And I remember Shamim Chaudhary, who had come uh, to do the radio commentary. He was uh, commentating live in those days to Bangladesh because there was a huge following uh, right. in Bangladesh. And at lunchtime, we bumped into him and said, I said, this game's gone for us. Uh, and you could feel the pain in what he was saying. But the table stunned. I mean, it was, it was up to the... When it reached to 43rd or 44th over, it looked like Bangladesh will get the score. Mm-hmm. And and I came in and I got two very critical wickets. Mm-hmm. Uh, one was uh, Moni, uh, you know, who who, who can can uh, get you quick runs. Uh, and again, I can't remember the, the, the I, I I think whether it was Farooq or or whose wicket I got, and the game changed again. But it was mm-hmm. very close, too close yeah. for comfort. Too- but that uh, yeah. belief between the two countries cemented that these are the two next two teams that could be a serious rivalry like Australia, uh, England or Pakistan, India. Okay. Yes, absolutely. And in fact, I was just checking the, the score, Asibhai, and uh, I believe you got uh, Farooq Ahmed and Amul Haq and there was one more. Oh, you got Minhajul Abidin Nannu. So Nannu. Yeah, on the last delivery. Bu- yes, uh, you did. Yeah. Yes, you did. Okay, amazing. Okay. So three for 55 in nine overs. So yes, you definitely broke a lot of Bangladeshi hearts that day, but obviously that I'm was uh, <laughs> that's totally fine because um, I believe that we really, uh, Bangladesh cricket at that time really needed that kick up the pants because um, yeah, I, I think that uh, uh, because this, the World Cup was going to be hosted in the subcontinent. So I think the fans were actually hoping that, you know, because India, Pakistan and Sri Lanka are hosting, uh, maybe they might, uh, decide to give one or two matches in Dhaka, but you know that's an unturned stone that you know maybe in another lifetime uh, you know we could always revisit it. So Bangladesh had to wait another 15 years until the 2011 World Cup. But uh, I am getting ahead of myself, Asifai. So let me just come back to uh, the, the the consequences of uh, the 1994 ICC Trophy. So obviously Kenya came second to UAE in that tournament, but uh, because they'd already come out second and there were three places available. So Kenya managed to uh, get to the 1996 World Cup. And so coming to Kenya's uh, first uh, official ODI uh, against India in that particular World Cup, I just have to ask you this one question. You bowled a peach of a delivery to Sachin Tendulkar when he was on 99. Uh, Sachin played forward and uh, the, the ball hit him on his pads. And But there was also a catch to sh- forward. Um, I think it was... Uh, just in front of the batter, silly, silly mid-off, if I'm not mistaken, or silly point. And you, uh, everybody went up uh, to appeal for the catch as well as the LBW, but the umpire didn't give either of them out. How on earth did that ever happen? So, and what were your thoughts when you were, were going living through that moment? Please walk us through that. Well, obviously, you know, it was a, a very uh, critical moment for Kenya as well as for Sachin because Sachin was getting uh, his first 100 in a World Cup. Uh, you know, right. he had never scored a hundred, and we were very confident. We had put a lot of pressure on him. Uh, in fact, that entire over, he couldn't get a run. Uh, and obviously, if the DRS was there, I would not even have asked the captain, and I would have just <laughs> uh, go, gone with that. And I think it was a very obvious uh, decision. Mm-hmm. But it's part and parcel of uh, cricket, where you know you take it in the in the stride with what it comes. Obviously, it would have been another feather in the cap to to get a, a stalwart of such. A, uh, caliber cricketer, uh, it was disappointing. But as I said, uh, sports people, you 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 take it in the strides uh, that we have. But yes, if if you ask me, was he out? 
100% he was right. Absolutely, absolutely. And uh, if memory serves me right, I believe in the post-match presentation, Sachin actually admitted that he did not nick the ball. So if he didn't nick it, so obviously the ball was only going to crash onto the stump. So, you know. Uh, well, either you know, way, because if, <laughs> if he didn't nick it, it was going to the stump. It was going to hit the if stump. If he did yeah. nick it, then he was caught. Exactly. Uh, it was uh, exactly what you said. So a double whammy that Sachin was very, uh, you know, fortunate to have escaped. But, you know, um, so... So moving on from that particular game, uh, Asibhai, let's talk about the other uh, amazing feat that happened during that World Cup. I am, of course, talking about that fantastic victory over the uh, double world champions, the West Indies, where, you, where, where Kenya was all out for 166 and then came roaring back to get the West Indies all out for just 93 runs. At what point during that match did you feel that, yes, we, we have a chance to win it? Do please tell us your thoughts on that. Yeah, when we uh, uh, were at the dressing room before going to take the field after scoring 166, obviously we had just come the day before to Pune. Uh, and as cricketers in those days, you know, you obviously want to play the best that you can, but you're also a tourist, you know, so you also want to uh, see the town and see where you're traveling. You know, it's not very often that people get that opportunity. So we were joking around at the lunchtime to say, you know, how many always will these guys finish the score with. And so everybody gave different numbers, 30, 25, you know, it was just random uh, round numbers. So fine, as we got onto the field, and I think the moment we got Lara, mm -hmm. I mean, the first week we got Richardson, you know, right. uh, Rajab bought beautifully well and Martin Suji. Yeah. Uh, when we got those two weeks, we felt, okay, it's good. You know, we don't want to lose in a bad, yes. bad manner, you know, because the, one of the goals we had was that even if we were to lose, because yep. we were expected to lose all the matches, but we would like to lose with dignity and being competitive. Great. So we would be happy that if we got four or five wickets, uh, uh, you know, in that match against West Indies, we would have done well. Yeah. But the moment we got Lara, hmm. you know, the, the it took a complete uh, shift in the team, you know, yep. and all of a sudden we got together and said, no, this is a great opportunity let's push this right. and let's put the necessary pressure and, and take some radical decisions on the field in terms of field placing, uh, in terms of putting the pressure on. And Kenyans traditionally are very good. If you open a door, we will yes. sneak in. Right. You know, and and uh, we put a lot of pressure you know, on them. I mean, the bowlers did a great job. The fielding was, I mean, everything went up You know, in terms of the levels of uh, building, the bowling, the cheering, the, you know, the support with one another. And they started crumbling. Mm -hmm. And they crumbled so badly that you would wonder, is this really the great West Indian team? <laughs> yes. And, and as I said, the rest was history. We had a fantastic win. Uh, it's something that's been talked about even as you're, you're putting it now. It was a huge thing. You know, it, all of a sudden, everybody started wondering, where is Kenya? Who is Kenya? What cricket do they play? You know, because we appeared in all international media, including in those days, CNN was a big deal. Mm -hmm. So it became a huge story. Uh, and obviously in India, as you know, the coverage was phenomenal that we became what we call instant heroes. And, and so the sense of belief kept growing from our first match when we played India in Qatar, mm -hmm. that we were competitive in that match. We went to play Australia. We were very competitive against them. And so the sense of belief was there. Uh, and then we got this opportunity to, to to hit West Indies, and the rest was history. 
Yes, and absolutely. And as you say, the rest was history. And in fact, I should take this opportunity to remind our audience that West Indies, the West Indies actually went on to become semi-finalists in that particular tournament. So it was absolutely not a, uh, it was no mean achievement at all. It was a phenomenal achievement by the Kenyan team to have gotten them on the ropes and then knocked them out. So I, as a neutral fan, I absolutely enjoyed that match. I have to say it's one of the uh, enduring memories that I have of that 1996 World Cup. So yes, thank you so much thank for uh, sharing those memories with us. Okay, so uh, moving on uh, so from the 1996 World Cup, you know, again, uh, let's go to 1997. And again, there's another ICC uh, tournament that's a trophy tournament that's happening. And this time Kenya and Bangladesh actually found themselves in the finals of that uh, tournament. And uh, my memories of that particular final, uh, we, we weren't watching it live on on television it wasn't being broadcast but we were listening to it on the radio and all i could remember was a belligerent steve ticolo smashing the bowlers all over the park to score an amazing 147 runs and the second you know highest score i believe was maris odumbe's uh, 43 and the end score by kenya was 241. Uh, looking back at that score in hindsight uh, do you feel that 241 was enough on that particular day? You know, do please share your thoughts on that. On those uh, conditions, 241 was more than enough. It was, uh, I mean, it was a winning score. But right. what happened is that it rained. Mm -hmm. uh, and obviously the game had to go to the next day. Again, it rained in the morning. And so the question was whether this match will be played or not. It was a debate and was left... Uh, uh, to the captains to decide where they would reduce then to 20 overs, uh, you know, in, 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 in those days. And so the management and the, the captains with the referee and the umpires decided to, to continue the play because everybody wanted to see. I mean, what amazed me was the entire ground was packed with Bangladeshi supporters. So I was asking myself, are we playing in Bangladesh or are we playing in in Malaysia, but the love and the support that, that I mean, that's another subject. The, the passion that the Bangladeshis have for, the, for their cricket is, is, I mean, fantastic. I would equate it to, to India uh, and Pakistan. So anyway, they had to score 166 right. in 20 overs. Now, the game went to the last delivery. Uh, I mean, Bangladesh, I must give credit because it was still not an easy score to get 166 because we had a, a good bowling attack, a good field placing, I mean, good fielding team. And so for them to get the, those runs, they would really have to uh, play extraordinarily well. And I remember they, they even changed the batting lineup and they sent Nanu to open the innings, right. you know, which normally is not the case. You right. know, he's your anchor, number three, number four. You know, he, he was always your rock solid to hold the inning. So right. that was the first uh, change that they made and sent him. And they went uh, aggressive from the beginning. And of course, wickets were falling when you take chances. And so the game was tilting uh, up and down up to the last uh, over where they needed 11 runs. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and again, getting 11 runs in the last over was not an easy task. And, and hitting a six straight right. was not possible in those conditions. Right. And I think it was Pilot. I think, was it Pilot? Yes. Who, it, it was Pilot, who was batting, yes. 
Yes. And That's Martin, correct. it was a debate between my, I mean, whether I should bowl that last over or Martin Suji. So we had a consensus as a senior cricketers and people felt, well, let Martin uh, take the over because it's 11 runs and we don't take any chances. And the first ball, mm -hmm. Pilot hits a, a straight six, which, you know, even shook us up. Uh, and and so I must give credit to Bangladesh. And then when it came to the last ball, it was a very funny story because on the scoreboard it says target one sixty six. Correct. Now we have played cricket in Kenya where this when the score is written one sixty six, it means one sixty six is to tie, right? And one sixty seven is to win. So when we looked at the score, it was one sixty five. So we're thinking they need two runs in the last ball. So even if we worst case scenario, we make sure yeah. that they get one run so that the game is tied. That's the worst situation for us. And I think there were eight wickets down. Mm, they were, yes. And uh, So Martin comes in balls, uh, gets on a leg by. The fielder is right there, throws the ball, doesn't get him run out. So one run. One run. And we say, okay, well, disappointing, but we have tied the game. <laughs> And then you see, all of a sudden see there is screaming and mm. celebrations from Bangladesh. And for a minute, we, we got confused. I see. As a team. Uh, right. Uh, uh, and, and I mean, it's a, it's a, a disappointing uh, uh, anecdote for us. Right. And then to realize that, no, 166 was the was target. The target. Mm. And, I see. And, uh, and of course, the celebrations that Bangladesh had was phenomenal. I mean, you know, the aircraft was sent. That night, uh, mm. I think Prime Minister Hasina. Yes. Uh, yes. He was the Prime Minister then. Uh, you know, they were received. I mean, with huge uh, support at the airport, taken around the city, and and of mm. course, well deserved victory for Bangladesh. Uh, for sure, for sure. And uh, in fact, Asibhai, you've helped to answer a 26-year-old puzzle that we as cricket fans in Bangladesh were always wondering that with one run to win. Why didn't Maurice Odumbe bring the field in to cut off that single? So this particular anecdote, this story, I did not know about. And I think a lot of fans here didn't know about that either, uh, that there was that confusion from, uh, with regards to the target. And in fact, uh, I should also point out to our viewers and listeners that because it was a rain-affected match and 166 was the target in 25 overs, if Bangladesh had gotten 165, Instead of 160, it wouldn't have been a tied match. Kenya would have won. So I think that uh, in hindsight, you know, it really helps to explain a lot about what happened on that uh, day. And of course, uh, as you rightly mentioned that, you know, uh, Bangladesh played out of their skins for those 25 overs. But if they had gone on for the full 50 overs, you know, who knows? Uh, I believe that Kenya would definitely have come out uh, as the winner on that particular day. And in fact, Asifa, I want to remind you about something that I believe you said after that match that uh, when there was a return series with Bangladesh, I can't seem to remember which series it was, but I did remember. I do remember reading in the papers that you went on record as saying that we're going to show Bangladesh that if it wasn't for rain, they would never have beaten us on that day. And then right after that, I open the newspaper and I see that Deepak Chudasama has scored 122 runs and Kennedy Otieno has scored 144. And I was like, oh gosh, the whole Kenyan team must have been very upset about that loss. So they've come back yeah. all guns blazing. So could you tell us a bit about that particular match? And yeah, what happened is that, yeah. remember, after the 97 uh, ICC uh, uh, trophy, 
the ICC, and I think it was good lobbying by uh, Mr. Ashraful mm. uh, from Bangladesh and, and our administrators to see how they could create these two na upcoming nations to get more opportunities uh, at a higher level. And then there was the first time when ICC uh, started what we call the ODI status, the one day international status. And right. Bangladesh and Kenya were the first two teams to be given that status where it meant that we would get automatic entry uh, to the World Cup uh, and, and get more opportunities with the test playing nation. Yeah. And so obviously after getting that uh, status, uh, the important thing was to have some matches. And so the first series arranged was in Kenya, between Kenya, Bangladesh and Zimbabwe. Right. Uh, and the first match was between Kenya and uh, Bangladesh. And obviously uh, that loss was still hurting us. Right. Uh, you know, it was if I have to call uh, it one of my most disappointing... Of course, I was happy for Bangladesh uh, because I... My first visit in Bangladesh was 1995, and and I felt very attached and love with the country, with the people, uh, with the passion that they had, and the respect that I enjoyed. Uh, I'm to date have a lot of attachment with Bangladesh, and so well, we were disappointed. And so obviously now that we got the one day status, we are playing at home. We had a good team, and so we were determined to do well, uh, not because we are playing Bangladesh, but we wanted to do well. And so, obviously, the start of the, the series was very important. And I think we scored, I think, well over 300 in that match. Uh, and we dominated that match. And, and uh, in fact, that entire, uh, we beat Bangladesh twice, twice, twice in, yes. the, in, in that uh, uh, series. And we lost to Zimbabwe in the final. In the so, yes, we had a good win, a convincing win. Uh, but it was not to prove that we are better than Bangladesh. But as you rightly use the word, the rivalry, uh, in yeah. a very progressive manner, was very comparative on the ground, but we had excellent relationships uh, to date yeah. uh, with most of the players that I played with uh, right. outside the ground. I mean, whether you talk about uh, uh, Bulbul, whether you talk about Nannu, whether you talk about Atar Ali Khan, mm -hmm. uh, you talk about uh, Moni. I mean, even when I visited Bangladesh in 2006 to do commentating, you know, we had wonderful uh, comradeship, you know, where we would, you know, go out for meals and reminisce those good old days. Mm -hmm. Wonderful. And and it just goes to show that cricket is a sport that unites everybody. And I'm extremely pleased to hear, Asim Bhai, that you still maintain those good relations with the Bangladeshi players and vice versa. So it really is amazing uh, to hear. Okay, so uh, just moving on from 1997, Asim Bhai, I just want to very briefly touch upon um, another Tri-Nation tournament that took place this time in India, where India invited Kenya and Bangladesh uh, to play in India. Uh, back in those days, you know, that's 25 years to the day. And that's probably something that, you know, Bangladesh doesn't get invited to play in India at all uh, these days, I don't think. But but back in those days, it must have been quite uh, an amazing opportunity to be playing in front of an Indian crowd. So what are some of your memories from that particular tournament? Uh, keeping in mind that uh, Bangladesh also, I, I should just point it out to my audience that uh, Bangladesh got their first ever uh, win in ODI cricket against Kenya in that first match. But then Kenya bounced back to win the second match, as well as defeating India in, in one of the matches uh, before meeting India in the final. So do please share some of your memories of that particular tournament. Yeah, that uh, tournament was played in the uh, peak summer of India. It was May 1998. Right. It was known as Coca-Cola Trophy. And we were playing Bangladesh, uh, the first match in Hyderabad. Uh, again, a very close match, but that was Bangladesh's first ODI uh, victory. 
uh, with Akram, I think was the was the captain uh, on that on that uh, tour. Uh, was a good good match, and then we played them in Madras in Chennai. Mm -hmm. Again, a very close contest uh, where uh, I think we got away uh, in a very close encounter to stay into the tournament. Uh, so, the, as you rightly said, the rivalry was getting intense as far as cricket was concerned, and so we had some excellent uh, matches. Uh, very competitive, uh, and and uh, it was good for both the young nation that we got that opportunity. Uh, we didn't mind; it was very hot, but as Kenyans, we were fit, we were uh, hungry to play cricket, so we didn't mind, uh, irrespective of the weather. Then we beat India. I mean, that was our second major win at that mm -hmm. time, Gwalior. And I remember when I went to toss the coin with Azhar. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was fifty-four degrees at the center. I mean, that is hot. But what baffled me most uh, in the entire series was the Indian crowd packed in that heat. Yeah. I mean, you know, the st that stadium, I think, had a capacity of about 20,000 or so. It was fully packed yeah. in 54 degrees, you know, and it was amazing. I mean, it was such a huge thing. And it was very important for us to stay in that tournament. And it was important that we beat Bangladesh in Chennai. And then when we beat India, in Gwalior, we secured the position uh, to be in the finals, uh, which again is a dream for many cricketers to play at Eden Gardens. Yes, absolutely, absolutely, and and I, that was one of the um, tournaments which I personally enjoyed a lot uh, because of the fact that you know Bangladesh got you know that monkey off their back with the first win. But my goodness, Kenya was uh, such an amazing uh, you know side and the giant killers of that era. I have to say, you know, West Indies first, India second, so it really was amazing. Um, so coming to the next year, uh, Asifai, the 1999 World Cup, obviously uh, you, you were made the captain of the national team before they took off for England. And it wasn't the happiest of campaigns because uh, it was probably one of the lower points in Kenya. And, uh, and and we won't dwell too much on it, but I just wanted to touch upon one thing that uh, by this time in 1999, after the tournament, you decided to tender your resignation um, uh, from the captaincy as well as retiring from cricket. Uh, in hindsight, do you feel that that was the best decision to, to have made keeping your business commitments and your family in mind? Or if you could go back and uh, have a do-over, would you have uh, you know, decided to continue? Uh, so what would be your take on that? So could you help us? Very good question. Uh, first of all, uh, I think there's a misconception that uh, unless you win, uh, then it's regarded that you had a successful uh, uh, tournament. Remember, Kenya was a young nation mm -hmm. in cricketing terms. Uh, we were going to play in England where 90% of our players had never, let alone play cricket in England, had never even visited England. Mm -hmm. So the first uh, mistake or what we should have done was to have a tour the year before <clears throat> for players to get acclimatized the conditions to play in England. It's not very easy to play in England. You know, remember our strength was our bowling spin attack. Uh, you know, where we would rely on 30 plus overs on our spin attack. Uh, and, and so when we were playing in England, it was early, late spring out, so not even early summer. It was extremely cold, you know, where you could not even hold the ball. It was so, so tough. Right. But if you look at the results that we had, we were very competitive in almost all the matches. In fact, our management at the end uh, mentioned that we got, scored more runs 
in the 99 World Cup than we did in the 96 World Cup. So for, for me, I would not regard that as an unsuccessful trip. Uh, but we were competitive and we were making a mark. You know, to do well in cricket, it's a process. We are a young cricketing nation. We are playing against the top of the top with, with all the experience that they had. So we were in a building process and that process required us to lose to learn mm -hmm. also, you know, so that you don't get complacent uh, on that. So there was a lot of learning to be done. There was a lot of work to be done. Uh, and so that's as far as uh, that issue was concerned. When we got back, and as you uh, rightly say, the, the politics came in, the, the fingers started pointing at the captain. Right. Uh, you know, we didn't win a match and so, you know, and all that stuff. So I sensed uh, that uh, the situation was quite toxic in, in the environment. In, and I'd already played 20 years for the country. Right. Uh, and so I felt it's better that uh, I come out gracefully uh, instead of bringing politics uh, and, and coming out on a very bitter note uh, externally. Internally, I was very disappointed because, as, as you hinted, I should not have retired. Mm. At that very stage, the team required my leadership. Right. We were a young cricketing nation and they needed somebody sober uh, because after I retired, you, there were several problems for them to bring me back. I'm sure you have a question for me on that. Yeah. So, on hindsight, if the situation was reversed, I would have been better placed to continue uh, another couple of years to stabilize and create a good pathway for the next generation to take over. Mm -hmm. So that decision was quite painful, uh, obviously, but sometimes you have to make those decisions. And again, I had a young family also, uh, and mon there was no money uh, coming from cricket. You know, we had to work all day. And evenings, you would go and play your, your uh, cricket. So having discussed with the family and having gone through so much, uh, and as I said, ultimate was to play for the country, to play for the World Cup. And I captained the national team in the World Cup. So, you know, all the, the boxes were ticked, those things are concerned. So then we decided it's better I come out and people should ask, why did you retire? Instead of when are you retiring? Mm -hmm. You know, that one word changes the whole meaning. So I'm glad that you're asking me that question because in your own assessment, I should not have retired. The question is, why did you retire? I hope I've answered you. Absolutely. And and in fact, um, I, I completely agree with you, Asifai, that uh, I think Kenyan cricket really needed you at that time when, when I look back at that particular period. And exactly as you said, that just because the campaign is winless doesn't mean that it was unsuccessful. And uh, if, if the powers that be who were behind the Kenyan cricket board had actually had the foresight to see that you were actually needed at that pivotal moment that, you know, who knows, um, you know, what may have happened and the, the destiny of Kenyan cricket could have probably changed in, in that instance. But uh, in, in fact, fact just to add something, there was a major debate within the administration. Right. You know, when I decided that I'm going to give a press conference and announce my retirement, right. I had a lot of pressure not to do that. Mm. by by uh, senior members of the board but it was there was no clarity on the way forward and i did not i don't like that so right. i said no it's better even though it's painful uh, i'm giving up something that has been with me for 20 years and i'm just giving it up uh, because of the politics so 
you know, the emotions were quite high at that stage, and that was the best decision felt at that very time by myself and my family. Absolutely, absolutely. And uh, and in fact, uh, just staying with uh, 1999, uh, Asibhai, and uh, leading up to the year 2000, so I, I just want to um, put something else in context, and this is a question which has been on my mind for a very long time, and that is, uh, Bangladesh, uh, in contrast, uh, had a reasonably successful campaign in the sense that they they had an opportunity to play against Scotland uh, during that World Cup, and so that was the main target that Bangladesh had. But the added bonus that they also got was that they also managed to beat Pakistan. And that particular win against Pakistan seems to have changed a lot of uh, opinions in the ICC or the powers that be, that yes, now Bangladesh is ready to gain test status. Albeit, uh, if, if I were to look back at that period, honestly, I would say that you know Kenya was uh, as deserving as Bangladesh, or in fact, even more deserving. And uh, Gordon Greenwich uh, had gone on record as saying that Bangladesh is still miles away from test cricket, and I believe that he's been proved right in many ways. So when that decision took place to grant Bangladesh test status, um, as a Kenyan player and as administrators with the Kenyan cricket, was there any kind of uh, you know slight or resentment felt by Kenyan cricket that you know they stole a march on us, or maybe we were also as deserving as Bangladesh, or they could have at least elevated both countries to test status uh, together. What would be your thoughts on that? Well, to be very honest, uh, in my view, Bangladesh deserved uh, more than us uh, for various reasons. Uh, Kenya was not ready. We were non-starters, if I have to be very honest with ourselves, because the national team was doing well as far as one-day cricket was concerned. But when you're talking about test cricket, that means you must have a good development, solid structure to bring up the players from the under-11s to the 13s to the 15s. That becomes a, a system. You have an A team. Uh, and then you must have a longer version of cricket played in the country. Now, I know Bangladesh had the three-day cricket going on and the four-day cricket going on. And the cricket was spreading uh, far and wide. And as far as uh, Kenyan cricket was concerned, there was nothing much happening other than the focus on the national team. So when you look at the results of the national team only on the one day, then obviously everybody would say Kenya should have been given the test status. But we need to be honest. Were we ready for it? No. We had a lot of work to do because we had no longer version of cricket. We never played two-day cricket or three-day cricket or four-day cricket. Mm -hmm. So how are you going to sustain at the test level? When you don't have the competency, you don't have the infrastructure for the longer version of the game. Secondly, I think it is unfair uh, to keep blaming Bangladesh to have not done well in test. Let me remind you the history. When the West Indies got their test status, it was in the 1930s. Right. They struggled for a number of years. Mm -hmm. India, when it got its test status, I think in the 50s, they also struggled. Mm. Uh, when you look at all these powerhouses, including Sri Lanka, right. when they got the status in 1979-80, it takes 15-20 years for you to make something solid. Because remember, it's like putting somebody from high school straight to a university on the, on the third or fourth year straight away. Mm -hmm. So it, right. obviously, you have its challenges. Uh, and, and of course, Bangladesh went through those challenges. 
of course, you have your own other problems, politics, and so many other issues, and that needs to be addressed on its own. Mm -hmm. But at that stage, to answer your question, it was fair for Bangladesh to get that opportunity. Uh, they've done quite well as far as home series are concerned. Mm -hmm. uh, they need to work on their away series, yeah. but it's a it's a process. It's not an instant result where people are expecting that the moment you get test status mm -hmm. that you are going to be wanted. It's not possible. Absolutely, and uh, and I do thank you for that, Asif, because I think that uh, you know when it comes to the uh, critics of Bangladesh cricket saying that oh they've not done well at all, um, your passionate defense of uh, Bangladesh and the test status. Will be will come as uh, a, a fresh breeze to all of us who have been debating with ourselves or internalized this that yes maybe we're the team is just not good enough but yes I do thank you for that and I'm sure that a lot of fans in Bangladesh will be very heartened by your passionate defense of uh, Bangladesh cricket and and Test cricket in particular and uh, just jumping ahead Asibhai to the 2003 World Cup you know uh, I I obviously we cannot have this episode without talking about that phenomenal uh, 2003 World Cup, which was hosted by uh, Zimbabwe, South Africa, and Kenya, um, and, and where Kenya managed to go to all the way up to the semifinals of that particular World Cup. And of course, I have to also mention that you were brought back uh, right in the nick of time to become a part of the team to add ex your wealth of experience to the 2000 to, to the class of 2003. Um, so, uh, tell us about your. Uh, thoughts of, uh, on that and memories of, of that particular campaign. How did it all start out for Kenya in that tournament? And what exactly was the goal at the start of the tournament versus where you ended up, which is the semifinals? You, you, you walk us through. Well, as we touched on it that, you know, when I retired in 99, um, uh, the, the board, as I said earlier, some felt that I should now exit. Uh, and of course I exited, but there was a, a problem started. You know, because, you know, when you are playing in a team and, you, and you're leading a team, it's two different ball game. Mm -hmm. And when you're leading a team at the international level, it's even a tougher situation. Because, you know, you are always on the receiving end. You're always on the defense because, you know, the, the big boys are, are at you all the time. So there was a lot of uh, acrimony problems in the team, uh, within the team, within the administration. And so just before the World Cup, we had a tour to Zimbabwe, which was a disaster, where there were a lot of accusations and uh, and the board felt that, you know, we're heading to a World Cup and we need to go back on the drawing board to see how we can salvage in what was going to be a disaster. Um, and so that's how uh, one of the reasons is why I was uh, recalled, uh, because they needed uh, some sobriety or some sense to prevail uh, and also to put a check and balance on some of the uh, dogmatic cricketers that we had uh, uh, in the team. Mm -hmm. And one of the major issues that not many know is that there was mutiny in the team where the players had threatened to boycott to play for the World Cup if they did, were not uh, paid and some other conditions that they had placed. So there was a worrying factor because remember Kenyan cricket was growing. So it cannot afford at international level not to participate in a World Cup or to create a, a drama and, and create a bad image for themselves and for their administration. Mm -hmm. So they had to really bite their tongue, you know, to come back, the same board to come back to me. But, you know, so I was also debating 
because I really had not played any competitive cricket, you know, social cricket. Mm -hmm. So to play the last World Cup in 99 and then come straight to the next World Cup, I think that might be a record on its own for a, a cricketer to play one cup and straight to the next World Cup. I'm not sure if any other cricketer, maybe in Bangladesh, but <laughs> I don't think there's any other, other cricketer who has done that. So my first task was to speak to the team and explain to them the situation of where, where the board is, what are the challenges they are having, uh, and to try and uh, bring sense, you know, the sense must prevail, that the cause is greater than our individual needs. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So we had a, I had a long discussion with the team. It was very difficult because remember, I'm coming back to the team four years later, not sure how I'll be received. You know, whether I'll still, because I was a very formidable character, you know, as, as, as a member. Uh, so how will they receive me? Will they be comfortable, uncomfortable? So, But because there was already a split in the team, mm -hmm. uh, so a, a lot of things needed to be, to be ironed out. So I had a long discussion and explained to them. And by the time I finished the explanation, who was the captain, was ready with everybody to sign. He just tore the paper uh, and that was the end of it. And so the focus came back to cricket, uh, right. that we are representing the country. Uh, the World Cup is, is greater than any of us. The sport is greater than any of us. Uh, and, and a World Cup is a World Cup. I mean, there are thousands of professional cricketers who have not played a World Cup, yet they're professional. So we are few fortunate mm -hmm. to go into the World Cup. And how can we let this go? Right. So we started the campaign. We had a bad start against South Africa. We beat Canada. And then we came back to Kenya to play Sri Lanka. Right. And that, I feel, was the turning right. point when we beat them yeah. in a capacity uh, crowd at, at Nairobi Gymkhana. And, you know, beating also the former world champions, you know, in, 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 in good fashion. So, again, the sense of belief uh, came. Everybody wanted to do well as individuals. And if everybody wants to do well, then as a team, obviously, you are going to do well. We, we go back and we face our rivals, Bangladesh, mm -hmm. uh, in, in Joburg, and we beat them, right. you know, in, in a convincing fashion. That's so right. that was our second uh, test playing team that we beat. Mm -hmm. <coughs> so we qualified for the, the second round, uh, where we, I think it was Super 6, Super. is what they were calling in those days. Right. And so we carried the points. So, so we needed one win in the Super 6 mm -hmm. to get to the semifinals. And in the Super 6, we had India, we had Zimbabwe, and Australia. Mm -hmm. Obviously, we were targeting Zimbabwe to win that. And we had a very close encounter against uh, India right. uh, in a very, very close match. And then we, uh, I would say, thrashed Zimbabwe mm -hmm. uh, to get to the semifinals. Uh, and so that's how the journey, journey went uh, to, to where we reached. Absolutely. And it's been, uh, and we're recording this episode in the middle of the 2023 World Cup. It has been 20 years since that amazing run that Kenya has had, uh, you know, all the way up to the semifinals of the ODI World Cup in 2003. And uh, in fact, um, there's just one more question that I had, Asim Bhai, and that is with regards to your per personal uh, man of the, you know, performance in the match against Australia. Um, and uh, at one point, I believe, you had taken a bunch of wickets without giving away a single run. And because of that, you were offered, you were given the Man of the Match award um, in that match against Australia. So it must have felt extremely special to have won uh, such a prestigious uh, prize in a World Cup. So what were your memories of that? 
Of course, we were. Uh, I mean, when I came to bowl, we the you know, Australians were 109 for two or 15. Mm-hmm. So they needed about another 50 or 60 runs. Uh, uh, so it was more like going through motions. But the moment I bowled first to second ball to Ponting and I see him struggling, I changed my mode completely. You know, I said to myself, no, I have believe in myself. Even if they need 10 runs, they need to get those 10 runs. So I was very focused uh, on every delivery that I bowled. Uh, and, and of course, uh, getting him was a, was a huge, huge wicket. Uh, and as you rightly said, by the time I bowled my first two overs, I had three wickets for zero runs. Right. Uh, one stage, I bowled eight overs, six maidens, two runs and three wickets. You know, so even at one stage when I was looking at the scoreboard at the end of the over, I was like asking myself, is there a, a mistake or something in the scoreboard? And then after the match to be given the man of the match, I mean, I could not uh, give a better closure to my 23-year career to get a man of the match against uh, what is regarded as the one one of the best uh, one-day Australian team in the in the history of Australian cricket. For sure, for sure. And of course, uh, uh, I have to say that, uh, you know, thrashing Zimbabwe, thrashing Sri Lanka, who also went on to become semi-finalists in that particular tournament. So there must be something, uh, you know, a connection between losing to Kenya and making it to the semi-finals because the West Indies did the exact same thing in 1996. But yes, as you rightly said, Asifa, you know, that particular tournament, um, I'm sure that any neutral fan or a lover of cricket who uh, must have been cheering for Kenya uh, throughout that tournament because it was such a fabulous run and of course you etched your name into history uh, along with the class of 2003 you know by going all the way there um to that uh, to the semi-finals so uh asifa i just have to say that uh, at this point in time I, I have pretty much exhausted all of my questions for this episode but before we let you go i have a couple i, I have a couple of surprise guest questions for you and so with yeah. your permission, I would like to just read out a couple of them. Um, so the first guest question that we have for you is from somebody whom you know very well. And he is, uh, in fact, Mr. Athar Ali Khan, your, arch, your friend and rival um, yeah. from Bangladesh. So let me just read out the question that Athar Bhai has given. And so uh, the question from him is, uh, uh, dear Athar Bhai, um, everyone expected Kenya to go from strength to strength after their sensational win versus West Indies in the 1996 World Cup. But what actually happened? Has the concerned authority made any serious attempts to develop the cricket infrastructure in Kenya? Uh, Do you see any chance whatsoever for Kenya to make a comeback in terms of a good cricketing nation? So yeah. Well, first of all, much appreciated for Atta to to pose this question. Um, And I'm actually, uh, following him on his commentating work that he does a very good job that he does and he seems to be really enjoying it uh, which which, uh, which in fact I shared uh, once um, uh, with him in the commentary box when I visited Bangladesh when Kenya was playing I think it was 206 or something but coming to Kenyan cricket uh, it's a very sorry state uh, and I had said this long time ago in one of my interviews with ESPN Cricket Info, that Kenyan cricket is dead and buried. Uh, it's very painful for me to say that, but that's the harsh reality. Uh, we have no quality uh, development structure. Uh, we have no competitive cricket. Uh, we have no A team. If you look at the fixtures that the national team have, 
is nothing of significant. We are now in Division Three uh, at international level. So a team that had reached the uh, ODI status, knocking the door for Test status, reaching the semi-finals of the World Cup, has now gone so below that it might even become an affiliate country uh, in time. The interest has dwindled. Uh, people are uh, very, very upset with the whole situation. And uh, to answer the question, I see no hope, no future uh, for Kenyan cricket to go back to the level we had reached. Okay. Uh, well, that is um, uh, quite an eye-opener. And obviously, a lot of fans on this side of the world will obviously be very disappointed to hear that as well, Asibai. But uh, if I could just uh, go back in time 20 years back, Asibai, I can't remember if it was right after the 2003 World Cup or maybe it was in between the 99 and 2003 World Cup. Where in one of your interviews, if I remember correctly, you mentioned that uh, Kenyan cricket was not getting as much support from the government. So it, was that uh, actually the case back then? Is it still the case now that maybe government support could have probably tilted the balance towards reviving Kenyan cricket, but that's just not happening. Uh, would you say that uh, that's the case? Or... And I said that the, we don't have the government support then. The idea then was for us to spread the game around the country because it was focused on one city or two cities. Right. But if you want to go to the test status level and you want to make it an impactive sport, the game must spread far and wide. Right. Be it schools, be it the estates, be it the towns, be, and there must be facilities created because mm -hmm. how else are you going to bring the cricketers? They're not right. just going to spring from, from the sky. Mm -hmm. So that was the support that, that I was talking was lacking. Mm -hmm. Now the damage is so deep that any form of support at this stage is going to take a very long time if appropriate uh, support is given, appropriate administrators are running it, competent people are brought in, then it's a long process if you want to reach the level. And remember, mm -hmm. a lot of the associate countries now are very powerful. Mm -hmm. I mean, during the time of Bangladesh and Kenya in the 90s, we never even heard of Afghanistan playing cricket. Right. Uh, you never heard of Oman playing cricket. You never heard of uh, Saudi playing cricket mm -hmm. or uh, Nepal playing in any substance. Now you see all these nations are, are up their level of cricket. They've grown and Kenya has gone further down. So it's going to be a, a, a toll road uh, for us to come back. Mm, okay. And um, yeah, of course, uh, um, as I mentioned that it is uh, disheartening at this point in time, but, uh, you know, you know, with a lot of uh, thoughts, prayers and, you know, good governance, you know, who knows, you know, at some point in the future, we will, of course, all hope as cricket fans that Kenyan cricket will find their way back to top level, top tier cricket. So Asifa, I mentioned that I have a couple of uh, surprise guest questions. So do please bear with me because I have a few more to go through. Um, in your last um, answer, you mentioned ESPN Crick Info and the commentary you did with uh, Adhra Ali Khan. And so my next question is actually from somebody who works with ESPN Crick Info. And his name is uh, Mr. Mohammed Issam. He's the Bangladesh correspondent for ESPN Crick Info. And he's also the author of the book, on the Tiger's Trail, and Isam is a friend of the show. He's also recorded an episode with us. And his question to you is, um, dear Asif Bhai, uh, please tell us a bit about Kenyan cricket's connection with families, because as far as my knowledge goes, it's a small community that plays cricket there. 
So what was it like having so many families contributing to cricket in Kenya? So I, I think that's an amazing question. So great question. Yeah, you know, cricket was played in uh, Kenya uh, with private clubs. Uh, the uh, hundred years ago, when the British uh, colony uh, were uh, ruling the country, they they allocated uh, land to different communities. Uh, so who had their own cricket clubs. And so the people who lived around the, the club, the locals, uh, started going into the clubs uh, and started uh, playing with maize cob and the cricket balls and they got opportunity. And so that's how you see the three, four families uh, that are part of the Kenya, the Odumbes, the Tikolos, Sujis, the Obuyas. Uh, those were the main uh, uh, families that played cricket. Uh, and that's how the, the few families that you hear about, mm. purely because they were living in the neighborhood of those cricket grounds. Of those cricket. Okay, uh, that's that's very, very interesting. And in fact, I should also mention that your brother Arif, uh, of course, played both tennis and cricket. And I believe that if he had not emigrated to the UK, if I'm not mistaken, then perhaps he would, we would have seen the two of you together uh, playing for Kenya, uh, right? Yes, indeed. In fact, that has always been a discussion because he was also a very formidable cricket and a tennis player, right. uh, but you know, situation uh, compelled him to migrate. I think it was in 1986 when he moved to England. To England. So yeah. it's a, a debate uh, that maybe uh, time would have would have answered it, but unfortunately we did not get a chance yeah. to play together. Yes, absolutely. It's an unturned stone. But, uh, but speaking of uh, family, uh, Asif, I should take this opportunity to also, um, you know, put in a word about your son Irfan. And uh, as far as all the clips I've seen of him in the documentary and on YouTube, uh, he uh, he's a flamboyant wicketkeeper batsman, as far as I can tell. And so I just wanted to ask that uh, with regards to your own, um, you know, playing career uh, as a left-arm spinner as well as a batter, uh, maybe it's fair to say that your bowling was your superior strength. But seeing how uh, uh, well your son plays as a batter slash wicketkeeper. Is there a tinge of regret uh, with regards to maybe you could have done a bit more with your batting skills or how do you look at it? Or are you satisfied with what you've done as far as the batting is concerned? Oh, that's a, a very good observation. In fact, my father was a formidable batsman. In his short career, he scored 18 centuries. Mm. So it's the uh, blood. In fact, when I used to play club cricket, I was one of the main batsmen for the team every match. And as far as Kenyan cricket is concerned, I'm disappointed with myself because, yes, I could have by far contributed much more in batting also. But the environment and the situation also was uh, was not very conducive and it's not worth going into those details now. But yes, I am disappointed with myself. I could have done much, much more in batting also. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And of course, I should also, you know, uh, take this opportunity to mention that, you know, uh, having that formidable uh, top order and middle order, you know, Kennedy Otieno, uh, Steve Ticolo, Morris Odumbe, you know, at any time, uh, I believe if there was a, a non-test playing 11 that the ICC had come up with, you know, all three would have definitely had a chance to play for that particular team. So yes, it's probably, that's also understandable. Okay, so one more, uh, two more questions, uh, Asifai. The next uh, surprise guest question actually comes from Mr. Shumit Chakraborty. He is Sachin Tendulkar's biographer, and he's also the author of the book, Master Luster, What They Don't Tell You About Sachin Tendulkar. And his question is, 
that uh, Kenya made it to the semifinals of the 2003 World Cup when they played against India. Now Kenyan cricket appears to be nowhere at the moment. What went wrong and how can it be revived? I believe we've already uh, touched on this, uh, but if there's anything else that you'd like to just add to this question, you know, do please uh, go ahead. Well, I don't want to repeat all that, but uh, what is the way forward? The way forward, in my view, would be is first of all for all the stakeholders to to accept that we are on ground zero. Uh, you know, it's important to accept it and believe that we are there because I strongly believe we are there on ground zero. And then I think it's important to bring in uh, good past administrators who did a good job, who understand what needs to be done, past players uh, to share their experience and people who love Kenya cricket, whether it's internally or externally, and to have a two or three day serious discussion uh, to, to see how we can uh, do what I would say damage control, if you want to use that word, and to see how we can revive uh, the process again. And again, if it is done correctly, I see a minimum of eight to 10 years for us to really come back strong mm -hmm. if we handle it correctly. Right. Okay. Uh, absolutely. And uh, and of course, we wish all the best to Kenyan cricket in that revival process and and Godspeed uh, to uh, Kenyan cricket to, to get there as soon as possible. Okay. So the final guest question that we have um, for this episode, Asifai, is also somebody that you've had the pleasure of uh, competing against. And his name is Tetenda Taibu, the ex-Zimbabwean oh. captain. And he's also a friend of the show. Uh, he also recorded an episode with us, and he's also the author of the book, um, Keeper of Faith. It's uh, his autobiography. And Tatenda's question for you is, uh, greetings, mate. Uh, the team that reached the semifinals of the 2003 World Cup, did you believe from the start that you had the potential to reach the semis? Or did you grow more and more confident only after you had won the first big game? So I think we touched on this as well, but you know, do please go ahead. As I said, when we went into the tournament, we already were on the defense with the internal squabbles and problems that were having there. Having overcome that, the idea was to be competitive in that tournament, to do well in the tournament, because Kenya had already made a good name internationally. So it was paramount that we do well. And in the process, we were targeting two teams that we, we have a very good chance to win against. Uh, one was Canada. And the second one was Bangladesh, uh, obviously because of the hist historical records between Bangladesh and Kenya. So those were the two teams that we had targeted that we would win. And if we win that and we uh, were competitive in the rest of the matches and hopefully create an upset because Kenyans are known for that, then the, the mission would have been uh, done. Yeah. But as I said, after beating Sri Lanka, the sense of belief grew so much right. uh, that nothing uh, was stopping us. Yes, absolutely. Okay, one, wonderful, wonderful. Thank you so much for sharing that, Asibai. So, um, so those, those are we're done with the guest questions, Asibai. But just before we let you go, you know, I have just two last questions. And uh, as you know, that we are, after all, a podcast about books. You know, it's in the title. So we have some staple questions that we ask our guests about, specifically with regards to books. And so the first uh, staple question that we have is. Um, what genre of books do you enjoy reading? Are you more of a fiction person or a non-fiction person? So do please tell uh, us about that. Non-fiction. Non-fiction? Okay. Um, any, anything in particular with regards to non-fiction, business books or, or bi biographies, autobiographies, memoirs, you know, uh, could you go it's into specifics? Yeah. Books, 
mean, one of the books that I've enjoyed what, reading is uh, Rich Dad Poor Dad. Mm, uh, uh, Robert Kiyosaki, right? Yeah, so it's a good book to, to, of course, you know, being in the business world and being a, a businessman uh, right. is quite intriguing uh, book and the other book that I I like reading is more on uh, motivational if you want to call it is uh, tough times uh, never last tough people do okay sure. uh, so that's another book that I've enjoyed reading and of course there are several others but I, I cannot remember all of them now. okay okay no no problem we'll take your answer as it is and I think you've mentioned some wonderful books uh, which our, def our audience would definitely do well to uh, have a look in. Okay, so the second uh, uh, staple question that we have asked by, and let me just give a preamble and say that uh, this is one question which happens to be one of my favorites, but our guests have all said that, Omar, this is way too tough a question, and so they always take a bit of time to answer it. But I'm sure that you know you'll be able to give us a good answer. I'm taking a back seat. You can see I'm taking a, a back seat to, <laughs> to take this question. Okay. All right. So here we go with the question. Uh, the question is, if you could select a book that you feel that every young person should read at least once in their lifetime, it may or may not be related to business or to cricket. But if you could select something that was edifying or useful for a young person to read, what would be that? the name of that particular book? What would you select? Well, the... Uh... I would, there's a, uh, an Islamic book called Nahjul Balaga mm -hmm. uh, by uh, Imam Ali. Mm -hmm. uh, that has tremendous sermons in there on various aspects of life, has various uh, uh, thought-provoking sayings, uh, and I would strongly recommend that book to be next to your bed. Mm. Okay, wonderful, wonderful. So, of course, uh, as I as I mentioned, that uh, we are huge fans of history uh, in in the show as well as religious history. So, yes, that particular book by Imam Ali. Of course, we'll have it in the description so that our viewers and listeners can have a chance to go through it. Yes, thank you so much, Asibai, for that particular recommendation. So, let me just conclude by saying that for our viewers and listeners who have been with us all this time, uh, thank you very much for staying till the end. Uh, the book, once again, that we've been discussing today is The Kareem's A Sporting Dynasty by Asif Kareem, and it's about him and his family, three generations, two sports. So definitely check out the book on Amazon as well as Google Play. Tell your friends and family members about it. Go out and buy the book. It's a fantastic book uh, put together and written by a fantastic sporting family all the way from Kenya. So Asif, my thanks to you as well, sir. You've been a wonderful guest, and I've really enjoyed talking to you and reminiscing about Kenyan cricket. And I really hope to have you back uh, at some point for a future episode, if and when you decide to write another book. And we also invite you back to Dhaka, to Bangladesh, uh, whenever, uh, for, for, you know, to, to come and see uh, how Bangladesh cricket has progressed, as well as to reconnect with all of your friends in Bangladesh. So thank you once again for your time. Well, thank you also for inviting me for this podcast. Um, you've been extremely passionate about this uh, podcast that you have done, uh, and you've got, you've had some tremendous interview. Uh, and and you, I could see that the research that you did, you were very well prepared. Uh, you did good work on this matter, and I really enjoyed this uh, podcast. Uh, thank you for the invitation to Bangladesh. It is always a pleasure 
Uh, it is always something I always get excited whenever I do come to Bangladesh. And I'm hoping that um, somewhere along the line, I may get an opportunity to come back to the commentary box uh, in the Bangladesh Premier League mm-hmm. or in any of the Bangladesh uh, uh, series at home. Uh, it will be a pleasure to come there. Okay, wonderful. And and if you... Uh, if somewhere for the Bangladesh national team as a mentor or as a, uh, a guide, it will be a great pleasure. Absolutely. And I hope that anybody... Uh, from the BCB who was watching or listening to that would know that Mr. Asif Kareem is available and of course uh, uh, to to help coach or to act as a mentor. So Asif, I know that our cricketers will only benefit from your depth of experience and knowledge and wealth of knowledge. So yes, uh, 100%, we would love to have you here in some capacity and I really hope that this message goes far and wide to anybody who's watching and listening who's in a position of power and authority to do so and to make you that offer. So once again, Asifai, thank you for your time. And uh, I wish you all the best uh, to you and to your whole family. And I really hope to catch up with you again soon, very soon. Uh, All the very best to you and your family and continue with the great work you're doing. Thank you so much. Okay, bye-bye. Bye for now. Have a good day. For the office.